This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, so nice to see you again. We missed you last week, but I know that you were in the beautiful area called Cannes in France. You can do it, Avery. Tell us how it went. And I'm interested in understanding, sort of getting a temperature on how brands were looking, not just at Web3, but kind of all emerging tech. Yeah, well, always wonderful to see you, Sam. I've been looking forward to Gen C this week. Can was amazing. So for our listeners who have not yet heard about the Can Lion International Festival of Creativity, this is the most sort of prestigious advertising awards festival out there. And this really began as a way for international creatives to recognize what great work was, what really broke through across different categories and different mediums from print to digital and beyond. And actually this year they added a few categories for metaverse and NFT because there was so much sort of advertising effort and energy in those categories. Did you guys win any Can Lions? No one won in those categories, which I think is actually pretty interesting. I should clarify, there were subcategories within the categories. So for example, it would be like best use of partnership, best use of sports. And this was the first year there was a subsection available for NFTs and metaverse. We did submit two. We did not win any. But to uh, provide some transparency, actually nobody did. I know there were a number of different sort of Web3 brands and agencies attending after they'd submitted and nobody won any of these, which I think is interesting because it kind of signals that the more, you know, traditional juries, which are of course made up with award-winning creatives and CMOs and things like that, maybe this year, the sort of hotness of what we had talked about the last two years of NFT and metaverse had just cooled off a lot. So we had a great time. Gary Vaynerchuk gave a keynote on stage, which was very well received. And had a punchline of that message was people spend a lot of time obsessing about yesterday, obsessing about the perfect TV commercial and these sort of like top-down brand campaigns that resonated a decade or two ago, but are increasingly less and less relevant to consumers. And then we also have this whole focus on tomorrow, which is all things like everything will be on the blockchain, everything will be in VR. And his push was like, actually, where marketers are often missing is the today, is like where consumers really are today. So I thought that was an interesting perspective and one that was well-received. We did host a boat at Vayner. We always host a boat and that was super fun. And we had a number of different Web3 partners join us and sort of co-host and co-activate including Salesforce's Emerging Tech Studio and including Roblox and including some place where we actually had the one and only Bobby Hundreds join us just to sort of share a little bit of bridging the physical and the digital worlds and what that sort of entails. And of course, we had a bunch of other fun partners co-hosting things like Visa and EY and TikTok and a number of other sort of great groups. So it was a very action-packed week. My week was very focused on talking about emerging tech and the topic of every other panel was, of course, generative AI and how that's going to impact marketing. And from my perspective, there were a lot of people talking about it and a little number of people who actually really understand how this stuff works. I think we heard a lot of people kind of pontificating about 
a far-off future without the practical, this is what brands can do today, can be thinking about today. And also a very broad understanding of what generative AI is. Like there were a lot of media vendors who also hosted beaches and boats and things like that. And these companies that have been around for 10 years are all now AI companies. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You have to come next year, Sam. I actually was planning coming this year and then scheduling, of course, like everything in crypto gets crazy and you can't commit to anything. So next year, I'm just doing sort of the pipeline of straight from VCon, going to build a tunnel to France and I will emerge out of the center of your boat, which I'm looking forward to. With that, though, I do think that it's worth us or really you, because I think you just have such a good perspective and you attend all of these things that the brand narrative that is happening around Web3 has leaned a little bit more skeptical. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because as we know, hype drives too much and then you end up sort of getting yourself stuck in something that may not be actually the best for your brand in the long term. And I think we're in the same place with AI. I think it's so smart what you just said because brands say we're an AI company and then you ask them what they're doing and they're like, well, we're like doing automated color correction on our ads. And like, it's something where, you know, they think the allure of AI is what everyone wants to talk about right now. And there isn't really a there there yet on the advertising and marketing side. I'm really excited to sort of chart with you over the course of the next bunch of months where that actually can come through. I really believe, and I think again, inspired very much by you that AI and Web3 are sort of adjacencies more than anything else. And then in fact, AI is part of the Web3 evolution of the internet. So thank you for bringing that to us because I think it's important for us to kind of always be on the edge of where consumers and technology are intersecting and then how brands can utilize those for benefit. Yeah, I think that's a very well-reasoned perspective, Sam, and astute observation. Listen, NFT might have been the word of the year in 2021, but it is not the word of the year in 2023. And I think brands are wondering what they do now. I think in the past like two weeks alone, we've gotten a bunch of briefs from brand partners, those that we've worked with for a long time, and also those that are new, many that are new to Vayner saying, we launched this thing. Now, what do we do? How do we take this community that we started forward? How do we you know, fit this into a cohesive narrative around what we're doing as a brand? And I think we're going to hear a lot more of that in the coming months. And some people kind of go into a very dramatic direction with this of like, oh, everybody thinks Web3 is the dirty word. I don't think that's true. I think that people and brand marketers, listen, this is a tougher economic cycle than what we've seen over the last two years. There's this like, is recession happening? Is it not question looming? And some of the hype and excitement that had fueled initial conversations and also very heavy initial investment in some of this technology has not played out the way that people thought that it might or would. And, you know, as a fiscally responsible leader, companies are thinking, okay, what do we do now? I think that the question of innovation, it's not a question of should we be innovating? Because of course they should be innovating. And that's, you know, key to driving business results for any type of a brand. But it's what is the format of that innovation? And how do we ensure that it's like cohesively aligned with our brand? I think instead of treating Web3 as this sort of separate standalone initiative that doesn't have vowels in the program name, we're seeing that move to like an integrated brand campaign and 360 programming, way more IATs, which stands for integrated agency team, meaning bringing together the various partners who work on a brand to ensure there's a cohesive narrative and a clear through line throughout brand communication. I see way more of that happening. 
and way less of like, hey, we're going to go do this with four people who have a passion for NFTs and the CEO is going to say yes because they don't want to miss the boat. So I think it's just an evolution of how people are thinking about this. But from my perspective, they still very much are thinking and considering how they can be bringing like the future of the internet into their communication with their consumers, with their you know loyal customers and more. One thing that's really interesting for me is I was at an event this week and ran into Brian Trenzo from Polygon. And we had a long conversation about this very topic. And he made this interesting delineation, which I think just goes to what you're just talking about, which Polygon works with a ton of brand partners. And they said they are the brand partners that have a person who's the head of Metaverse, head of Web3, but doesn't have a budget and doesn't have a team. And then they're the brand partners that have built out teams and done investments to kind of think through the long term. And he said to him, that's what he's seen as the real difference of which brands are doing it just for a hype and a press release versus which brands are doing it to actually sort of build something into the future, which I thought was a nice way to put it. Obviously, it's overly simplified when you think of it that way. But I think there is something around if you're giving someone a remit that has actionable KPIs against it with a budget to satisfy those, you're going to take it very differently than like you just represent this thing that we don't really know what it is, but you go do it because you're the one talking about it. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, of course, at Vayner, like we're an agency. So like we only work with the latter camp of people who have a budget and who have resourcing. But of course, there's a lot of interest from sort of individuals at corporates. And I think sometimes it's like a self-proclaimed title. Like they might actually be like, you know, just a paid media manager or something. And they have like a passion for this. And they might put that on their LinkedIn and like try to engage with different like Web3 vendors. But I think for us, the majority of those people kind of fall under the innovation group or bucket. And like, you know, just to my earlier point, that's actually a function that's existed within like corporate marketing teams for a very long time. And, you know, it's those people, maybe they take on something until it gets so big that it folds into the, you know, sort of core marketing and core brand teams. And we've seen that with different formats of emerging media and emerging technology many times before. I was once on a search team, right? And that search team then just becomes part of like the marketing team. We saw that with social, we saw that with programmatic. And then there's a couple of them that are still in this like innovation bucket. I think AR is actually still there. AR is still in the like, hey, innovation person, what should we do here? I think AI is in that bucket right now. And then all things sort of like blockchain related are often in that group. But of course, you know, that's an oversimplification. There's many different formats. But what we've seen is there's kind of like three for brands who are going to invest. They either have a dedicated group within the sort of innovation function, a person who's responsible for these things. Sometimes they'll also have it within their like a center of excellence group. And that might be people who are not fully dedicated, but, you know, have some element of their responsibility that goes towards that. And then sometimes it's like a studio, like a standalone team that is like empowered to kind of like run this stuff for them. And that's their entire focus. And they don't work on kind of core brand initiatives. Those are the three that I think are probably most popular. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Instead of focusing on the two or three news stories that are popping up, I'm going to hold those because our guest is going to have perspective on those as well. So he doesn't know we're going to ask him about these other projects, but we're going to get inside of his head because there is no one better to talk about some of these projects that are happening right now than our guest, who is Jeff Carvalho. So right after the break, we're going to talk to Jeff Carvalho. He started Heist Nobiety. He has his own sort of consulting and advisory service called Barada. He's the host of one of the sort of most interesting audio shows now on Twitter was one of the biggest ones on Clubhouse. Just someone who knows a lot about a lot. So when we get back, Jeff Carvalho. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers. 
engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash gen C. All right, we are back. We are here with Jeff Carvalho. Jeff is the co-founder of High Snobiety. He's also the co-founder of Barada. He advises a ton of different companies and projects. He's the host of the Culture Club, which we'll get into. And we just found out he also had a serious XM show many moons ago. So Jeff, tell us about you, your arc, where you come from, your serious XM show, and what you were doing at High Snob, and now what you're doing. And also, I just want you to give a little bit of, you're someone who I think is the kind of person a lot of us go to when we want to know what's happening on the cultural side of not just Web3, but really just like generally how cultural trends happen, because I think that's an area you track. So give us the two minute on who is Jeff Carvalho. Yeah, first, thanks, Sam and Avery for having me. I've been, you know, a student of culture, as strange as that sounds, or a student of society and, you know, since day one. And what I've been obsessed with is really this idea of how can we use different media avenues or different platforms in order to push things forward. So I've always been obsessed with, you know, how do you take the ideas or interests that you have and try to expand them beyond just being an interest? Like, how do you convert a love for something into something bigger? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that spirit when they find it. Like a lot of kids, you know, and I may be dating myself, started as a pharmacy student up in Boston, discovered the internet in the mid nineties and really never turned back. And what I mean by that was just understanding that there was something there was a major change and revolution in how we would begin communicating with one another. And more importantly, how we would begin sharing information. We've seen a few cycles of that. I've been lucky that my story just took me through a variety of opportunities to use tech at the sort of edge of where culture started to really touch it. So as an example, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, blogging really took off. If you remember Blogspot and Blogger at the time, my co-founder in High Snobody, David Fisher, was you know just a savvy guy that was paying attention to what the end gadgets and gizmodos were doing and understanding that you could use these free tools to start building a platform and a way to express yourself. More importantly, communicate with others out there. High Snobody was really born out of a blog in that sense. There were two parallels happening at the same time in early 2004, 2005. You know, the world of being online was maturing out of what web one was. And we started to see, you know, real tools and real rails that allowed for average everyday people to communicate. And I think a lot of us think about things like e-commerce popping off. We think about blogging and then really sort of the early days of what social media would become today. And I understood David's vision at the time of what he was covering from a product side. It was quite unique to maybe what I was experiencing in my hometown in, in Hartford and in Boston when I went to university. And it really gave me an eye to product that may not have been available in my area or my region. So the ability to see a shirt that's exclusive to Japan was quite interesting. But long story short, we were able to just use tools to really begin to tell our story and begin to connect with people. When you have a voice and you begin to really try to reach people, you start to understand how many people out there are similar to you. We're all unique, of course. We're all the same in many ways. But those are nuances and the minutiae of why we like what we like that allow us to connect with people. And I think High Snobody offered a place for 
people that were into the culture of music and, and fashion to really come together. But at the core of it was really technology. It was, you know, blogging platforms like Movable Type and Blogspot, and certainly a lot of what you see with CMSs today. The other track that was happening at the same time for me was that I was, you know, I come out of college radio. I'm a huge fan of radio as a format. Apple had just released iTunes after releasing the iPod, and they began supporting podcasts. And I think that's, if we look at podcasts today, we have plenty of tools and apps within our devices that allow us to do that. But back then, it was quite difficult for you to go out there and get the content you wanted. It was not necessarily pushed to your devices. You had to really go out there. But, you know, we heard some people working on podcasts, again, especially on the tech side. If anybody remembers, it was actually, I think he's still a very active podcaster, an MTV VJ. I forgot what his name is. I think he's a Dutch guy. He was just pushing things forward and making us realize, look, this is not just for the nerds, which I was, by the way, this is for everybody. And we used a show called The Weekly Drop, which was a weekly podcast that really started covering what was happening in the world of fashion uh, with an extended lens to sort of a more pedestrian take, right? So we were not fashion-centric folks. You know, we were certainly had our own style, but to break through in that landscape was really difficult. You know, you had the Vogue's of the world, L's of the world, and traditional magazines. And with the ability of connecting online and telling stories online allowed us to do was in many ways disrupt how these brands were working. And quite frankly, I'd say one of the things that I'm most proud of and also, you know, something that we really pushed for was this idea that brands, you know, they did not necessarily see platforms like ours 10 years ago as, as viable outlets to reach consumers. And we've shown to them that consumers can be found anywhere. So you know, from there, the High Somebody journey is about a 15-year one for me. We went from, again, being a blog to a, a brand. And again, using technology throughout that journey to really lift us. And I think for many people like me, my crypto journey started around 2016, you know, bought Bitcoin like a lot of people. And I probably did the smart thing. I didn't touch it. And I just left it there and, you know, didn't get nervous about volatility and pricing. I got lucky during the pandemic that we really discovered and launched a new show, Culture Club, which is myself and four of the co-hosts, Ruba Abunima, who's recently at Tiffany's, a guy named Ben Deese at Vice, and Gian DeLeon, who's a men's director over at Nordstrom. And it allowed us for to give us a platform where the four of us could talk during a time when we couldn't come together, and then more important, allowing us to bring a lot of guests on. And what happened on our journey, you know, if I think about my journey from going from like lifestyle, a world of sneakers, a world of of product into the world of what we see on chain today, it was really because of Culture Club. So as we're talking about, you know, we're interviewing the very best artists, the very best musicians in the world, there's these other rooms on Clubhouse that are talking about this exploding NFT thing. And certainly what was happening with punks and crypto kitties back then. So we're listening to this, you know, not in tandem, but at the same time and wondering, wow, what's happening on that side? And when it became clear that there was an interest for the art world and certainly for creators to get involved in this economy, Culture Club became a very safe place for artists to come in. So we were literally learning about the technology, understanding, or at least beginning to think about where it could go in real time. I think we're still doing that very much in real time. And everyone can follow along. And I think if I think about one of the things that really got me obsessed into this next technology wave, it's the idea that we could watch it. We're literally watching people develop product or develop ideas on the fly. Many of them don't work. Some of them do. And I think this kind of expression of using technology and creativity at the same time is a pretty rare opportunity that we have. And um, 
I couldn't be more excited. So for me, it just became very clear that there was a lot to be done with blockchain, not just within the world of creativity, but in how we transfer or barter within one another. You know, I still have this dream of having a, a home deed on chain. I think that's going to come 100%. And um, yeah, I couldn't be more excited, guys. Jeff, I love hearing your whole background. I'm going to focus in on the pharmacy school thing. I don't think a lot of kids start off in pharmacy school, but that is an amazing foundation and probably gets to sort of like your precision and organizational skills, which I'm sure have played out well in your life. So you've been a part of like many different waves of culture and how that's manifested from blogging to NFTs and sneaker culture and beyond. There are many opinions on like whether crypto and Web3 has had a culture. But before we even get into that, like you have tracked and been a part of many different cultures, apparently from pharmacy up through Japanese t-shirts. How would you define culture? For me, culture is a coming together of ideas and individuals in many times very like-minded ways. Like-minded ways where we're like giving each other a high five for understanding the nuance of something. You know, I know Sam is you know, we're all probably music nerds, Avery, as well. But I know Sam like can pick up on the nuance of a lyric and understand where that came from. To me, culture is a little bit like that. You know, and if I look at it specifically from the product side, it's a bunch of people understanding that a set of stitches on a shoulder may be representative of a specific designer. I always use the Margiela example. Margiela, just a prolific designer. He has a house named Maison Margiela. And if you recognize his label, which is basically on the back of his shirt with four stitch marks, you understand what you're looking at. And I think culture to me is the coming together of people that have a shared understanding or a shared view of how they want to do things or where they want to take the world. And then they surround themselves with like-minded people, objects, music, places, and things. And to me, that's that. But culture can change and shift. You know, I think in the United States, we come from a place where if you grow up as a skater, you're very much a skater. You're very core to that. You keep that close to your chest and it becomes your identity. But in other places of the world, specifically, I'd say within Asia and certainly within cities like Tokyo, Seoul, culture changes all the time and what people are into constantly evolve. And certainly we do too as people, but how we identify, I think, is what changes. So what's always attracted me about what's happening in the world of, say, lifestyle or fashion is that we can use this word culture, but many times we have to kind of explain to people, what do you mean by culture? Because everyone's culture is different. And I think that's quite frankly, what's most exciting. But if it wasn't for pharmacy school, I certainly wouldn't be here today. I want to go back, Jeff, for a second, because I think as we define culture, I think you define it often by how people interact with each other and the communities that form. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of our listeners may be just young enough that they don't remember that pre-social media, there were still these influencers out there, but they were bloggers. That's right. Now, when you had a blog, you had to do the work to get people to stay interested, right? I remember like the Andrew Sullivans and Wonkettes and all sure. of these folks, you know, back in the day that like drudge. Which by the way, I still read. <laughs> of course you did. Um, you only red-pilled into that. <laughs> but, you know, all of these were folks who the technology had allowed the democratization of information, right? You didn't have to have a newspaper vet you and say, you're good. All you had to do was go on and be willing and committed enough to write with cadence, with thought, and then people would follow along. And, you know, one could argue kind of the first real big wave of Web 2 wasn't when Twitter and Facebook came out, but it really was this sort of blog ecosystem. 
But I think it's interesting because around a lot of those people, other folks started to come, right? They surrounded and they said, oh, here's someone who's giving voice to the thing I like. It reminds me almost of Grand Royal that the Beastie Boys put out a long time ago, right? That suddenly they're like, this is our culture, which is not just music. It's also fashion and it's also travel and it's also food. And we can kind of have this sort of communal stop on the journey that people get to take. And I think that in some respects, social and especially Twitter has done a poor job at being able to create cultures in the same way, because you have to jump in or you get to jump in. Kind of everyone has a voice without having to have done the work. And at least the way I've always looked at culture is that there are those who are kind of the arbiters of culture who kind of they're doing gatekeeping, but really because they're keeping out the shit that isn't or doesn't belong in the community. That's right, Sam. And that whereas I think today and I think this is my problem with Web3 as a whole, when we think of it culturally, is someone can come in, they can recognize that pump schemes are the way that I can get people to build an audience. And then they just go hard on that for six months and then suddenly they have 500,000 followers and then they actually have the ability to affect the financial side of our culture, right? So this is something we talked to Bobby about this. We talked to a bunch of folks around this question, which is, do you think that there is culture in the Web3 space yet? I would say yes. I think there's enough, and this may be self-serving, this may sound in some ways with ego, but I think there's enough people creators, developers, funders, people with money that believe enough in this technology stack in changing how we can peer-to-peer communicate. I can give you a list of a hundred things, right? We all know them. We've talked about them for the last two years. I think there's enough people that care about it that we're getting closer. So I used to sort of joke and say that on one side you have tech, the other side you have culture, right? And if we look at the world of blockchain, Web3, whatever you want to call it, we've always leaned toward this tech side, right? Tech has always led it. And we've been desperate for creators to come in and actually help develop. I think we're getting more of that. I think we're starting to see large companies do that. I think there's been experiments in that, especially around just onboarding a community just to get a sense of what the stomach is for things. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's been a few stores out there that have released tokens just to get a sense of what size that community is. And I think we're realizing that it is small, but in some cases it's quite big. I think culture's here, but we just need, we need tech and culture talking better. We need to have a better understanding of what the consumer has a stomach for as they enter the space. Because as we know, it's not easy. I mean, even onboarding, you know, we constantly talk about onboarding into a wallet, but even beyond the wallet, transactionally, it's getting better. We just need more consumers to be able to touch it. And to do that, we're going to need a lot of people stepping in and trying to touch it. Now, there's been a laundry list, I think, of creatives that have come in and may have stepped away, I'm all for trying to bring them back in and understanding how we do that. Guys like Bobby, and certainly there's plenty of other projects that treat themselves like traditional companies and traditional brands, I think are doing a good job of at least thinking about it. What we're learning, I think, from the larger companies that it does take quite some manpower to put a friendly layer on top of this, or at least put a layer that makes the average consumer want to go there and step in. But yeah, I firmly believe there is. I firmly believe there is. Conviction. I love it. We need it. We've been through this before. You know, I won't go back as far as web one <laughs> and I can, you know, for web two, what was amazing was that we had a tool set that allowed for us to express ourselves. And for my work at High Snobiety, it was blogging. And for my work at Weekly Drop, it was podcasting as a platform, right? 
in many ways, I see the blockchain as this new platform, right? We can look at it in many ways, but if I'm looking at it specifically as a way to be able to communicate with individuals, I think it's there. Being able to lock in, in some way, data or information or metadata that allows me to have an understanding of who you are and what you're into, I think is important. The argument you should be making back to me is like, well, Jeff, listen, we can do that today, certainly in Web2. We've now seen Apple and Google and others put on big privacy walls that have reduced the ability to be able to have that conversation or at least to put protections in place. But I think we're going to get there where it's going to be quite easy for people to just step in and understand how they can play. Absolutely. I love the conviction. And I think it's, you know, the Gartner hype cycle, I reference this all the time. So I think it's like the perfect illustration of what we're going through, right? There's this like peak of inflated expectations. And then there's like this trough of disillusionment, which is where we are now, right? People are like, is this completely dead? This is never going to matter again. And then we'll kind of like find the use cases that drive towards productivity, which I think, you know, Jeff, you're navigating, Sam's navigating, like I'm navigating every day is like, where can this actually fundamentally improve the lives of consumers? And then subsequently brands like brands don't care about blockchain unless consumers care about blockchain in a sort of B2C sense. From a B2B sense, like absolutely there, are, you know, I think the deed is a great example. There are many financial use cases where like blockchain actually fundamentally does improve like a problem that exists today. But I think a lot of times brands are looking to build solutions that don't really have problems. Like the handbag provenance thing, I can say, like as a very avid handbag collector myself, that isn't something that anybody cares about yet. If that changes in the future, I think we'll see consumers come up with that and then brands kind of mirror it. I know we've done different chipped bags and things like that many times over. And the adoption of that is still so low as it exists today, right? Like with it outside of niche communities who do care about this. So, you know, it can feel like Web3 is sometimes inventing these solutions that don't have real problems. Would you say that this is because there's money or conversation or which aspects do you view as like fully transformational, whether it's from a fashion perspective or a culture building perspective? I'll look at it specifically from the product side as an asset or a commodity or tradable asset, as well as a collectible. They're all the same thing today. A vinyl figure or a pair of sneakers is as much of a commodity as a, a share in McDonald's or in Nike. It really is. I would argue there's an emotional component to that, right? Like I might like totally. irrationally value a bag because I really like it or there was a special experience that like I don't feel that way about like a share. Right. And I think that that both is and isn't true when you think of something like Tesla. Because I think people will buy one share of Tesla because they want to be closer to Elon Musk and in his orbit. And I do think back in the day, people were doing that around Jack Welch and GE. I don't know that it's completely different. Professional traders take the emotion out of it completely. I think the retail side of trading, a lot of it is, here's the brands I loved. My father bought Apple in 1998 or 99 as a stock. Smart guy. But it was only because he loved the products and he was willing to say, maybe this will be a thing. Like he also bought Chewy as a stock, which is a pet brand, because he loves dogs and he has a lot of dog purchases. But the reality is that one has not paid off for him in the same way because not as much scale in dog biscuits as there are in <laughs> computer chips. And I only say that in the sense that I think so much of perceived value is perceived value. It's not necessarily about intrinsic value. Totally. I get into this argument a lot with friends about collecting. They're like, I'm a big ephemera collector. I love paper, believe it or not. I just have stacks of old documents. And my friends are like, why do you keep this? This is only intrinsic value. There's nothing here. Like you're just saving this for your own personal provenance. 
I think that's the difference between a collector mentality and maybe a stockbroker mentality who is willing to move his chips as much as possible. There are, I think, similarities to what's happening in street fashion and sneaker culture with what's happening in the world of NFTs and certainly has. There were times, and I still do it, where you find a pair of sneakers to Avery's point, you make an emotional connection to it, you do your best to hunt it, you find it, you get a great price. And what you end up usually doing, if you're savvy, is you buy multiple pairs. Why? Well, I can keep one pair and wear it. I'll take one pair and I'll sell it because I'll likely make enough money to pay for the three pairs I bought and I'll take one pair and put it on ice, right? It was the idea of doubles and triples. We're living this out with every single mint we see where people are picking them up. And you know we can certainly argue that there's more of a financial play in what's happening on chain, but there are still people out there that are buying multiples to keep it, to flip it. And the way we think about product, be it on chain, in the physical world, the digital world, they're essentially the same. The beauty of the digital world is that it just takes less space. But for me, what I like is this idea of using technology to be able to disrupt and do things that I expected certain platforms to do. So as an example, vaulting in general has been something that's been part of the art world forever. There's plenty of tax havens around the world where people are storing art. I think if we actually look at the percentage of art that's actually stored in these lockers, the number will blow your mind, the amount of art that we're actually not seeing today, right? And when it comes to what's happening in the physical world where I come from, I thought the same thing would play out with the world of sneakers, the same way that it has with sports cards, where I can purchase something, but I don't necessarily need to hold it in my hand. The same way that I don't need to hold a a share of Apple in my hand. The same way that I don't need to hold a CryptoPunk in my hand, because I know where that provenance is. I know when I'm buying it. And I think we're going to get to a place where the chain helps us take culture to a new place. That place, in my mind, is one where consumers can have the same excitement as Avery has when she buys her handbag every time. But thinking about it differently, in my mind, they're not necessarily thinking about an NFT as a piece of art, which they can, but they'll be thinking about it more as a transaction. That's my belief. And that transaction, the same way that me putting my paycheck into my bank is sort of a confirmation, that transaction is going to be a confirmation that will become important. And I think many people like me agree, and I think there's people that disagree, we just may not use the terminology that we're using today. Yeah, and Jeff, I think, you know, Avery and I talk a lot about the brand side of this. And I think sometimes we may also, because we're looking at macros, and I think we're looking at business trends more than anything else. And there's two things that I think are really interesting in what you said, if I'm just going to extrapolate out, right? Like the sneaker market in general, right now, the aftermarket on collectible sneakers is about $11 billion. They're predicting it's going to be $50 billion in the next 10 years. So it's a giant asset. To your point, Jeff, like when I worked in a sneaker store in high school, I didn't think, oh, I should be collecting those Ewings or I should be collecting those first, you know, Jordans that were coming out, but I was there for it, but there wasn't the understanding of it. We were just wearing these things until they fell off our feet and then we would buy a new pair. Right. But once people realized that this was a thing, then we started to get in cultural collecting, trading, like all of the sort of almost stock market like apps where you could put your collection in. I would not be surprised very soon to see the opportunity for people to collect and trade and never actually hold the sneakers, just have them in some warehouse somewhere. And they're going back and forth between people in the same way that wine is doing that and some other physical objects are. So I think that's where for the consumer, there may be an easier play here as young folks are much more interested in alternative financial investment vehicles. And so that's an area that I think is super interesting. And that's why I think people now get that sneakers are that and fashion can be that. The other thing, I was at an event the other night for Rhizome, which is a kind of art 
supportive collective. And um, IXLs was there and being recognized. And, you know, she got an award. She got up there and, you know, and again, I've seen her work all over. She's a generative artist. She's a really brilliant generative artist. She was recently on the cover of Wired or Fortune, hadn't utilized her imagery as well. But she was like, I was just doing cool stuff in my room in Panama. That's right. Yeah. But people found her because the blockchain was her vehicle. She was already tech forward and she was enabled. And, and I've talked about this a lot, like in Panama, where you may have sort of more fluctuation in currency value, you have a different type of lifestyle to get paid in a currency that normalizes to the highest bidder, Ethereum, which is how she has made her money, could transform her life and could transform her community. Absolutely. That's another reason I think that people are valuing this system. Whereas again, brands might be like, oh, I did a drop and it didn't go exactly as planned. I'm out. And I think they're missing some of those connective stories of sometimes culture and collectability takes a long time. Sometimes you need all these other layers there. But when you think with a global mindset as well, that there's an opportunity to tell a bigger story. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this, other than I think that there are some lessons here that you know we can pull out of the cultural movements, which is when I was in the sneaker business, it was sell to wear. Now it's sell to collect. But that took 35 years, right, to get there. And we might just be in the, I'm going to wear it till it falls off my feet moment of this. Avery, as you're talking to these brands, though, do you think they understand some of those technological cultural bits that are informing this market? I think they do. And I actually think that over the last two years, like brands have a pretty good understanding of how this type of thing works. And now the question is just around scale. So Jeff, before you hopped on, Sam and I were riffing a little bit and, you know, you have been called this out right now. Like the question is like, do you need blockchain in order to do this? And I'll give you an example. And it's one of the reasons that at Vayner, we've been spending a lot of time in Roblox over the last six months is Roblox has a thriving digital economy where people can collect things. There's scarcity. There's creators who make these items. So if you have a favorite creator, you can purchase it from them. And then for some of those items, that that creator actually gets 10% when the item is resold. So this idea of creator royalties, it's just not on the blockchain. It's in a closed ecosystem, but where 66 million people a day are spending 2.4 hours a day. So it's a lot of the same principles that you're talking about, Jeff. It's just in a closed ecosystem versus a decentralized ecosystem. And from a philosophical perspective, like love it or hate it, that is appealing to way more consumers than the current decentralized experience, just because there's a lot of friction. There's also a lot of fraud. It's complicated. And I think there are not as many fun things to do versus, you know, going and connecting with different people and having these digital experiences. But the principles of self-expression, of creators, of collecting, and of a sort of digital first economy, like that already exists today in Roblox and in Fortnite and in Minecraft. So I think that where companies are thinking about it is just like, where do we put our bets in order to deliver value for our shareholders and for our brands? And of course, it depends on their target demographic, right? Like if you're targeting Gen Z, it's a very different thing than if you're targeting like, you know, millennial men who live in Central America, right? So I think that there's that question around demographics. It's as much of a question around not understanding this. It's just balancing this priority and determining if it is a priority when consumer adoption is still very nascent. Jeff, what's your take on that? I love this conversation because I think for as much as there's an incredible promise and belief in a trustless system and a decentralized system, I think that scares the majority of people out there. I think people are still very scared 
with this idea that we can self-bank. Let's just be honest about it. Average person can't remember a key phrase or a passphrase, you know, including myself. You know, this is why we use tools. So I think what makes Roblox, Fortnite, and most brands, regardless of their presence within what's happening in the world of blockchain, is that they're trusted. In fact, if you look at the numbers more than ever, it's clear that brands are are almost more trusted than politicians these days. And in some cases they should be. So consumers today look to brands for more than ever a connection, a commonality. They look at brand ethos. They look at the ethics of a brand to make connections. And during my time at High Body, we worked with BCG and still do work with Boston Consulting Group on white papers that are looking at the insights into what we call a cultural pioneer. And Sam touched on it earlier. We define a cultural pioneer as an individual within a, a friend group or a circle who is in many ways also the arbiter of not just cool, but the person that's making sure that the, the stuff that's not necessarily so interesting stays out of the loop, right? Their job is to keep moving people forward. And we find that these pioneers are quite rare and may not necessarily have the largest followership on social media, but have quite some influence in that sense. And what we learned is that there's a cycle of that where, especially if you look at influence, where we need to make it attractive and 100% almost need brands to be the ones that break through in order for people to trust. So for instance, let's just use a couple examples that I think you guys are both familiar with. And I, many of your readers may, if you're lucky enough to be in the Starbucks Odyssey beta, as an example, that's one very simple, what I would call a journey through a brand storyline in order to earn. You go into that platform and there's a variety of tasks that you complete. I think as a Starbucks fan, if you're using Odyssey, you're either a person that's interested in what's happening in Web3 or you're an actual diehard of Starbucks and want to remain with that, that ecosystem. So for Starbucks, I think it's quite easy. And I think for Nike as well and what they're doing with Swoosh, and I know that the three of us have had deep conversations in smaller circles around this, but individuals are looking to brands to help them get into this. They're like, oh, wow, I don't even know if this is Web3. I guess it is Web3, then let me do that. Let me step in. We need more brands doing that. And certainly from the work that I'm doing, I know that you're doing it from your side at Vayner, Brands are still interested in that innovation. I know before I came on, you guys were talking about AR. Is it still part of that trifecta of innovation? I think it is. I think there's brands out there that are still hungry to figure out how they can operate in a decentralized world, in a maybe trustless world, but within their own ecosystem and be able to touch things. Roblox, I think, has one interesting issue right now where they have an incredible creator economy, but there's a tremendous percentage of their creators that are actually under the age of 13 that are not able to be or take part in that monetization. So the question is, can something like blockchain, including laws around child labor and thinking about it and conversations around it, can we use this as a way to incentivize creators to earn? Maybe not in traditional dollars because that's not allowed, but allow them to earn in some other way. And I think those are solutions that can work on chain. What would be super cool is that I can take that earning whatever it is, and be able to take it somewhere else? Can I use it somewhere else? The argument I think, you know, dollar truest would say was, well, you can do that with a dollar today. You can, I can give you a dollar. You can go use that somewhere else. I think we're looking at it a little bit differently. We're looking at it in a way where we're trying to solve for problems that exist today. And again, I think, you know, creators under the age of 13 have a big problem around it. Certainly they need protections. And I think there's ways to use tools to do it. And yeah, I'm happy to see what you do, Avery. Jeff, just, you know, we've kept you for a while. I do want to let you talk about 
just a couple of the projects that you are involved with, because I know you're working on stuff on the gaming side, on the like tokenized wearable side. So, you know, why don't you just tell us about kind of what you're doing at Barada? What are the types of projects that you are advising and working on and that excites you about those? Yeah, so Barada was really a name that my partner at the time, who's now at Polygon named Brian Trunzo, came up with, and quite frankly, in order for people to not necessarily look at us as just fashion bros. Don't just look at us as a guy from High Snobiety who knows everything about sneakers, or that's what they thought, or Brian Trunzo, this guy who's been in research and insights on the fashion side forever. It just happens that the two of us also have been massive nerds around the world of, of what's happening on chain, and we needed a way to be able to break through and touch that work. Barada is that name. We do a tremendous amount of work under it. I would say the type of projects that we've touched over the years are, in some cases, helping brands launch what I would call 1.0 NFTs to really working on quite some innovation projects now where we're working with Fortune 500 companies and just helping them think about where they belong in it and where they can sit in it. So we do a tremendous amount of work on the strategy side. And what's amazing is with a circle like, you know, that we all have, it's amazing to be able to bring people that are smarter than me in to help these brands. So I find myself really every day learning from the very best people in helping brands play out sort of their vision of what it is. If I'm doing my job, you're not hearing about Barada, so that's good. But I'd say the one that I have put my name on recently is a game called Party Icons. Please check it out. It's actually sort of a bridge between what's happening in traditional gaming and what's happening on chain. Just like a traditional game like Fortnite, you can play it and earn, but you can make a decision if you want to take those assets on chain. And that's been exciting to watch. And if I think about why I got involved in that project is number one, I hadn't really done much in the game space. And number two was to be able to think about a novel approach of how you can slide into the DM of an average person who may not want to touch blockchain in any way. So that's been fun. And then with Culture Club, it's there's a lot of time that we spend on Culture Club and it's getting closer than ever. We've run two pilots, which we're quite happy with, and you're going to be seeing a lot more out of us. And what I think will make Culture Club really exciting in the season two will be this idea that it's not just necessarily, you know, don't expect us to just talk about Web3. As many of you know, our my um, co-host Ruba, we still got to get her over that bridge, but really an amalgamation of what's happening in the world today. How does culture touch tech? You know, what does AI look like? What does AR look like? Which I'm still obsessed with. And I think Apple's really doing a tremendous job and pushing into that AR side. How about pharmacy content? Is that going to be included? <laughs> so Avery keeps referring to pharmacy school. I, the pharmaceutical world is different these days, isn't it? I should give people context. Now, I'm old <laughs> enough to remember the pre-internet days. And, you know, I was in pharmacy school at Northeastern in Boston. And this is a true story. I was in a computer lab sending an email about to write an organic chem doc or whatever I was doing at the time. And the guy next to me was clicking on the screen. And I remember asking him, like, what do you... What are you doing? Because at that point I had only used email, which was very ASCII based and text based. And he's like, give me a floppy disk. I was like, oh, shit. I don't know if people remember floppy disk, but he gave me Mosaic. And I think it was incredible. Mosaic changed my life 100%. You know, and that was the end of my pharmacy school career. I, I basically failed out. I stayed in that computer lab, never went back into class. But we had one advantage the pharmacy school was connected to the computer science school. So we had access to sun servers and big machines in high speed connectivity very early on. So God bless. Unlimited computer lab passes just right. <laughs> in there all the time. I love it. Yeah. This is why he was so sexy on campus, by the way. Oh, thank you. Sam is my doppelganger. If anybody ever sees him, you can call him Jeff. It's just striking similarities. 
Jeff, thank you so much for joining and sharing your insights. You know, when I think about people who just continue to shape culture, even before I knew you, I read High Snob, of course, and your perspective on how culture is evolving just continues to be so fresh and relevant. So appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much. Listen, it goes both ways. I couldn't be happier to know both of you and I've been able to spend quite some time with both of you over the years, over the short time of the years. And it's amazing that business savvy minds like yours understand what's coming or at least are paying attention. So super happy you guys are here too. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, you're the best. Thank you. And with that, Avery, I know we both got to run. So let's wrap it up. Jeff, thank you so much. Avery, thank you so much. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Generation C. We just finished up an amazing session with the one and only Jeff Carvalho, who has had an illustrious career doing a bunch of different stuff. My personal favorite thing on his resume is High Snobiety. Check it out. And he's now doing a bunch of interesting Web3 native projects like Party Icons, which he just mentioned. So we will be back next week with another special guest. Hope everyone is well. And as always, hit me and Sam up if there is anything you want to hear us, see us talk more about. We are always all ears. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.